G'day guys, welcome to episode 175 of Talking With TK. I'm your host Tristan Cannell. Uh, we're going to be switching to the AFL today and one of the absolute legendary players and coach in Roosy, Paul Ruse. We've actually been trying to line this up for quite a while, even down, last time I was down in Melbourne we unfortunately had to can it, but uh, really good to catch up with Ruzi during isolation. He, he gives a great perspective, whether it's in business, coaching, leadership, culture. There's just so much to pick Ruzi's brain on, so I really think you're going to really enjoy today's episode. He's got his own company, Performance by Design, as well, so they specialize in leadership and uh, also, obviously, culture and programs like that. So definitely check that out at performancebydesign.co. Just a big thank you to everyone leaving reviews during this isolation period. It really helps me to continue to grow the show and also people that are sharing sharing the podcast with your family and friends. You know, it's a great time to hear great people like Ruzi speak. So continue to do that during isolation and I'm sure that hopefully we'll come out even better on the other side of this very, very shortly. My book, Talking With Champions, that's out now. So there is some interviews that haven't been on Talking With Champions. with TK, so the likes of Jonathan Thurston, Evander Holyfield, George Foreman, Layla Ali, Mario Andretti, and many, many more. I've been very, very fortunate over my podcast career to sit down with some some awesome people. They share their stories, and I pick out the best bits in Talking With Champions, which you can pick up at Dimmicks, Booktopia, or Anks and Robinson. It's called Talking, Talking With Champions. Usually retails around twenty nine ninety five, but I think online it's a little bit cheaper than that. So just have a little Google of Talking With Champions, and I'm sure that will come up. Definitely continue to get in touch. Love to hear from where you're listening to the show. You know, footy's just about to kick off on Thursday night, so I can't wait for that to be back. But hopefully across all the sports, it's all back. But definitely send me a direct message on Facebook or Twitter. I'm at Talking with TK. Instagram, you'll find me at Tristan Nell, K-N-E-L-L, or send me an old school email, Tristan at TalkingWithTK.com. Love to, you know, just have a yarn, just listen, you know, anything. So definitely, especially during this little time with isolation and all that sort of stuff. Definitely want to hear that. Any guest requests as well? I have got about 12 podcasts in the bag, so I've been pretty busy over the last few weeks just trying to occupy my time outside of work as well. But yeah, I'd love to hear any suggestions that you've got for the show. I'm all ears. So definitely get in touch either by the Instagram or the Facebook, Twitter, or even old school email. All right, guys, really excited for today's episode, and I introduce Paul Ruse. All right, guys, my special guest today is Paul Ruse. Paul is a legendary coach and player in the AFL, where his career started at the Fitzroy Lions before he moved to the Sydney Swans. After an incredible career, he was promoted to assistant coach in 2001 before he was given the club's senior coaching role two years later, where he would lead the Swans to the 2005 grand final winning against the West Coast Eagles before being appointed head coach of Melbourne Football Club in 2013. Today, Paul is the founder and director of Performance by Design. Welcome to the podcast, Paul Ruse. Ruse, welcome, buddy. How are you, mate? Good to see you. Going yeah. well? Yeah, doing really well, mate. First things first, mate, because I've been following, obviously, yourself and your son, Dylan, online. So I see that you guys, especially right now, because you know I know that you guys have got the, the Ruse Men's Club, which I've got a couple of invites to, but obviously, I live in Sydney, so obviously, I can't attend. But I think in today's, especially what we're going through with isolation and things like that, like the mental side of things, and I know, obviously... Tammy's very involved with her meditation and teaching you guys all that sort of structure as well. But kind of in this isolation period now, kind of what sort of chats have you guys had at home kind of about mental health and also wellness? Yeah, I think I've been really fortunate to be in the football industry because, I mean, it really is a people business and by very nature of the fact that we don't have a product. And I know a lot of companies talk about their people, but they don't really believe in it. I mean, they, they sort of use it as a slogan, we look after our people. but fundamentally. Being in football for 30-plus years, we have to find a way to get our players, you know, up every single week. And I think football's very innovative. And I remember when Tammy started meditation with the Sydney Swans players back in oh, mid-2002, 2003. Yeah. You know, so the notion of mental health was always at the forefront. Now, in terms of depression and guys coming out in recent times, you know, they certainly weren't comfortable doing that in those years. But what I'm saying is we always had the player's best interest in heart. So mm. as soon as a player would come up with an issue, we'd always try and find a solution. And I think what I've tried to bring into my post-football life is just that, that yeah. looking after yourself is just so important and particularly for leaders. And I think 
leaders are often the ones that don't ask for help and, and don't look after themselves because they're always worried about their staff or their, their family or whatever it might be. And, and I think what I've tried to do transitioning out of football is just take those skills to say no, whatever it is. And I remember Wayne Swash talking, and he's got Pucker up and he's a great mate of mine, mm. and he's been through really bad mental health issues. But what he said to me really resonated, that everyone has mental health. Yeah. I think when, I think when we talk about it, people say, oh, no, I haven't got depression or no, I haven't got anxiety or I'm fine. And I think when, when Swatter talks about it, and I'm sure it's consistent with anyone that's suffered mental health, they're not necessarily just talking to other people that have had depression or anxiety. They're talking to everyone and saying, guys, we all need to look after ourselves. And I think yeah. in this isolation phase, one of the, the few benefits is personal development because we've all got a lot more time, you know, now whether that's getting into a bit of a routine in the morning and, and getting up and meditating. Now, if you haven't meditated before, you know, I'm, Tammy's got a great, you know, a website, Tammy, TammyRoos.com, but yep. yeah, great courses you can do. And I'm sure there's other people you can get up, do a little breathing exercise, do a little meditation, get outside. We can still exercise. So for me, it's all about routine, mm. you know, do your, little, do your meditation, do your exercise, um, make sure you have something really healthy for food during the day, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really a combination of all those things that I try and preach to people. Yeah. And it's a lot of it is sort of common sense, but, you know, when people get so busy. So I think the great thing about this time, you know, one of the few really good things is we've all got a little bit of time to ourselves now where we can sort of almost do a self-audit and say, well, what am I doing well and what aren't I doing well? So really the message that, I try and give through performance by design, through the functions we have, through the Ruse Men's Wellness and Leadership Club, is just giving some really simple tools for people to look after themselves. And as I said, one of the biggest things as before about what Wayne said, everyone has mental health. Hmm. We, all, we all look at our physical health and we all acknowledge that, oh, well, I'm physically not feeling great, but we put the mental health thing in, oh, no, I'm not depressed, I'm not anxious or whatever. And it's a really good way to look at it. No, we've all got mental health. Mm. Let's all look after our mental health and our physical health together. And it's about just continuing to improve as a human being. Yeah, for sure. Now, Ruzi, you know, in terms of what you're doing now, because you stepped away from Fox footy and left your media stuff, but obviously a big part of your stuff is your leadership company. And obviously, as you, you mentioned, your stuff that you do with your son as well, you know, with Corona, now we can't form into like groups because I'm sure that you used to be going into businesses and also running events. How is that kind of the, the day and age right now with the isolation and kind of coronavirus and all those sort of things? How has that affected your business? Yeah, well, look, most of our business is face to face. So, really, at the moment, it's what can we do online? How can we help? We're just launching, you know, one on one coaching. So, for, for people that are at home yeah. and really want some personal development, want to work on their leadership, you can go to the Performance by Design website and, and look it up, and we'll do a free 30-minute consultation and just work out. So, again, it's a real opportunity for people's person, you know, how can I become a better leader, et cetera, et cetera. So it certainly had an impact on us. But I, I think from my point of view, what I've found interesting is on time and just observe. And, and it really has just reinforced all my beliefs about leadership, you know, and when you, when you look at what's happening around the world. And I think that's a great thing for me. And then just aligning with what I believe in and then re, in a sense relaunching what we do and, and what we know works is really just been reinforced during this period of time, you know, building strong relationships, mm. having a great culture. Now, if you've got a great culture in your organisation and everyone's really clear on what their work habits are and what behaviours are rewarded and challenged, yeah. it doesn't matter whether you're working remotely. If you've got a poor culture, then I guarantee the CEO sitting there going, geez, I wonder what Paul's doing at home. Yeah. I wonder what Fred's doing at home. I wonder what Mary is doing at home. Are they working? You know, are they just to be a really good leader, yeah. have a really good culture, have a really good set of defined behaviours and values and understanding exactly what they are and build really strong relationships. The, mm. the CEOs are the leaders that are on the phone constantly during this period, reaching out to their staff. Where are you going at home? How's your wife or, or how's yeah. your husband? How are the kids going with homeschooling? You know, I just really want to know. 
And I'll tell you what it does. When people come back to work, they're going to be so much more connected to that CEO, that, that manager, that sales you know, person or whatever. It's a really good opportunity. But it, it really, all it's done for me is just reinforce those things that I learned over 35 years of being involved in a foot yeah. club. <clears throat> I guess it's that real care factor, isn't it, mate? But realistically, looking at that word leadership, and I know, you know you're so passionate about it, when it, at what stage of your life did you, you really just really delve into that, that area? It probably happened organically early and I was really, really fortunate because when you're a kid and you go down, I went down to Fitzroy when I was like 16 years of age to play in the 19 so all you yeah. really want to do is play football. You don't really care about anything else. It probably wasn't till I was about four or five the senior players as leaders. They were un- unbelievable role models and then it sort of clicked a little bit around what is, what is a leader leaders are fundamentally role models now you can be a good role model or a bad role model and i was lucky to have great role models and when i look back when i started my coaching career it really was the foundation of everything i did you know gary wilson bernie quinlan laurie serafini mickey conlon who was still i still talk to to this day but their behaviours were just so good. And back then, we didn't have any sort of formal leadership meetings or anything like that. Mm. I just sort of watched and observed. And, and naturally, organically, I just saw them train. I thought, gee, if I want to be an AFL player, I better train like they do. I saw the way they carried themselves off the field. And I thought, oh, maybe being an AFL player, I can be a really good person as well. You know, I've got some really good role models. So it was probably when I got into my mid-20s, you know, and then I was made captain and I realised being captain, whether you like it or not, you are a role model. People yeah. are watching you all the time. doesn't matter where you are, where you go, what you do. Um, you know, you, you're always a captain of an AFL. Uh, you're always representing that club. Um, I realised that how can, how can you not leave this thing the chance how can you be really clear with your players yeah. on what we want to stand for and that's when we started the cultural transformation of the sydney swans footy club yeah just sticking on that like how do you pick a leader because from what i've observed sometimes the leader isn't the best player in the team for yourself because i know back in the day you picked Stuart maxfield and then obviously you assembled a group around him what was the thought processing around how you actually pick a captain and also your leadership group yeah, it's a good question. And it was a real leap of faith, to be honest, because you're absolutely right. Prior to what we did in Sydney in 2003, the start of 2003 season, the captain was typically the best player in the team or the, the longest serving. And, and look, to be fair, most of the time they had good behaviours. Most mm. of the time they were really good people. But again, we were going to sort of shake things up and say, if we want to be really clear on what we want to stand for and how we want to behave as a group, we've got to take this seriously. So we collectively sat around, coaches and players, came up with a set of behaviours and then we voted on our leadership group. And it was the Mm. first time it's ever done in AFL history. And it was, as I said, it was a real leap of faith. And it was probably the right time because we had a lot of leaders that had left the club. Paul Kelly retired, Andrew Dunkley, Tony Lockett had left for the second time, Wayne Swass. And we didn't really have an obvious sort of person that looked like they were going to step up. Mm. So when we voted on the group and... Stewie Maxfield was very, very uh, was transformational. There's no question about that because Stewie, by the very nature of the vote, had already got the respect of his teammates mm. and had already, through his actions, said, I can do these things that we stand for. And then probably what we didn't realise is how strict he was and, and he was unbelievable in driving behaviours and driving standards. And there's no question we wouldn't have won the 2005 Premiership and became the club that we were and still are under John Longmire had Stewie not been the captain of the footy club, you know, under our first um, go at this behavioural-based system. Yeah, you know, Ruzi, you mentioned before about when you introduced meditation with Tammy. How much buy-in did you get from the players immediately? Yeah, it was interesting because I'd, I'd sort of been meditating for many, many years and I knew the value of it, but mm. it was sort of one of those things that we didn't want to thrust it upon the players, so we made it... Um, voluntarily we just said Tammy's available who wants to do it we did Tammy did a really good session with some of the younger guys but it was no coincidence that the ones that really picked it up and did it all the time were our best players Brett Kirk Adam Goods uh, Jude Bolton Craig Bolton so it was really um, voluntarily and then once I got to Melbourne and that was 2000 and what was that 2013 and it just become a little bit more mainstream and so we, we did we did it 
um, as part of our routine pre-training. And then we introduced visualisation every game, I think in my second year as coach, and I was there for three years, and we started to visualise what certain things looked like. And now it's just become, again, I talked about earlier, how progressive footy clubs are. You talk about, I mean, Dusty Martin talks about it a lot. Mm. I know Dusty really well. and He talks about how transformational it is. And most clubs now do some form of of mindfulness, meditation, visualisation or whatever it is. And it's just an incredibly powerful tool. And Tammy and I have lived and breathed it for over 20 years and we certainly believe in it. Tammy's a great teacher and really simplifies it and got some great data on yeah, some of the fantastic uh, research that's been done on it. Mm. Um, but, yeah, look, in the early days, it was one of those things that we didn't want to force down players' throats. And it's a bit like when Pilates was introduced in footy and yoga was introduced in footy and yes. acupuncture. Yeah, you got to let players find their way. And But as I said, footy clubs are really progressive and, and fantastic at finding ways of, of getting the best out of their players. Yeah, just thinking of the meditation just for a tick, mate, you've still got your hair. And I know that... Footy coaching is one of the most, you know, it's so stressful. Like a lot of the guys I meet in the NRL, no one's got hair and everyone's stressed out of their eyeballs. But you always seem pretty calm and just pretty chilled out still and still performing with your teams. Like was meditation a huge part? And what other kind of practices did you do to kind of stem that, that you know, that negative side of the, the job? Yeah, I think a couple of things. Meditation was huge. I mean, the ability just to sort of, um, relax, go inside yourself and just spend some time with yourself. That's the best way to talk about what it is. Just clear your mind, focus. Um, so I did that you know, most days of the week, but, but it was religious on game day. I always meditate on game day. And I think one of the things I found meditating on game day, it was funny, I, I would often think, what am I going to say to the players today or whatever? And then when I was meditating or post-meditation, I'd always come up with a theme and it and there's no doubt because I was, you know, really clear in what I was doing and just sitting there in silence and with myself, I was able to come up with these ideas and I would always come out of a meditation or five minutes out after a meditation and go, I think this is the message I've got to give the players today. And I think, I mean, I'm probably a naturally pretty calm person, but certainly meditation was a huge part of, of being able to put AFL footy in perspective. I think the other thing that I, I always sort of mentioned that, to AFL coaches is get overseas, get away from Australia, you yeah. know, and, and obviously I was fortunate to have an American wife from a travel point of view, mm. but I but I think getting away every year and getting overseas always put AFL into perspective yep. because no one had a clue about AFL football in Hawaii or America or Africa or wherever it was. So then I started to realise even though it's extremely important for everyone in the system, including me, on the world scale, it's not like we're curing cancer or splitting the atom or whatever. Mm. And, I, and I was able to, to take those experiences. You know, we, I went through you know, a slum in Kenya. You, know, you go through the slums in Kenya and you see kids playing. I literally saw kids playing with a Coke bottle nailed to a stick. And I looked wow. at it and I thought, what is that? And it was actually a toy. It was the way they actually... Mm. And they were the happiest kids and laughing and we did this tour through the, the slums. And I think by seeing some of these things that you see when you go overseas and go to Africa and look at the wildlife and sit in silence and listen to the stories of, you know, the locals talking about how they live and what they do. And it always was, I was always able to put AFL football into perspective and understand even though it's critically important, it's really not that important. And, it, and I know it's hard to say when I've been in it for 35 years and I've seen the power of it. 2005 Premiership, you know, some other stories I could tell you in relation to, you know, the support mechanisms that AFL players and coaches and people could provide for the community was incredible. Mm-hmm. But I was able to put it in perspective. So if I had to pick two things, it would be the meditation and, and getting away from football at the end every off-season and the ability to put it in perspective where it sits in your life. I think that were the two main things. Yes, yeah, just travelling overseas was something that was drummed into me by my parents. They used to take us overseas a lot as kids. And then when I became an adult, that was something that I would do as well once a year, go visit somewhere new and just see how they do their lives. And like you said, learn a new perspective, especially around those slummy areas because like my parents are from Mauritius. 
And we went there a few years ago and my aunt's still there and she kind of like lives in the slums, but it's like a, just a normal day for her. Like if she's so happy, she was happier than us and she's got a 10th of what we have, but it gives you great perspective of how you can live a normal life with, with just a small amount of things. But all I was going to ask you as well is when you go overseas, do you go into other sporting teams and have you seen a major difference to how they do things compared to us in Australia? Yeah, it was the best things I did. And so I retired in 1998. And one of the best things I did was, you know, we went to America and we were always going to go there and we lived there for 10 months. But mm. I was so fortunate. I went to the LA Lakers, Chicago Bears, Chicago Bulls, the Denver Broncos, the San Francisco 49ers, San Diego Chargers. And it was a really good, back in, back in those days in 1999, it was, it was fantastic. And yeah. some of the things I brought back, you know, were, were, were game changers, certainly for the Sydney Swans. And one of them was that every session that they did, they videotaped it. Okay. I remember going to the Chicago Bears and they had this indoor, full indoor practice facility with two cameras on each side and two cameras at each end. And the cameras just beamed it straight back into their IT room. And I'm like, wow, this is unbelievable. So then... Yeah, we didn't have quite the money. We got a cherry picker and we got our IT guy, Anthony Carl, to sit up there and, you know, videotape training sessions. Um, I remember going to the Denver Broncos and they'd been through a pretty successful period. And I remember speaking to the recruiting guy there and I said, look, what? tell me a little bit about how you recruit. And he was all about character. He's you know, athletic ability. will always go for the, you know, the guy that's had the best grades at college, has been in the chess club or been in the... Uh, you know the the head of the head of school or whatever it might be. We all uh, the Lakers. I met Phil Jackson. That was I think it was post nineteen ninety eight. It was when I went back one year. Wow! And to meet one of my idols and mm. to meet him and he'd actually because Luke Longley had played played for the mm. for the Chicago Bulls. He was coaching the Lakers when I met him, and he said, oh, "I know about Australian rules footy. Is that what you do?" I said, "Yeah, I coach the the Swans." He goes, "Oh, that's pretty cool." So it's really good to. But to go through their organisation and meet with their GM at the time was incredible. And so, yeah, look, it, it, I think we've closed the gap a bit now because when I went back to a number of different places and we had a couple of Dallas Cowboys business, business when I was coaching the Swans, we've certainly bridged the gap. Yeah. But going in 99 was a real eye-opener eye and some of the things I was able to introduce to the club were, were quite quite game-changing. Some of them reinforced my own views. But, yeah, it was a great opportunity to, to see what the best in the world do and, and how they do it. Yeah, Ruzi, have you seen Netflix is about to bring out that documentary on the Chicago Bulls? Yeah, I'm actually – yeah, it's pretty exciting, isn't it, to sort of see. Well, I went to the Chicago Bulls and I went and I sat with – so I'll be interested to see how Michael Jordan came comes up because it was fascinating. When I went to and I met with the head of their um, physical training, like their IT, sorry, their their fitness guy, yeah. and I sat down and it was interesting. I asked him about Michael Jordan. He said, look, Michael very rarely trains with the team and he does his own thing. And, really? And what he is great at. So we, he said, look, we very rarely see him when he's doing his weights and doing his running and all that sort of stuff. But when he comes to training, as in game plan stuff, he trains the way he plays. Like, he's mm. just ruthless in what he demands. So I'll be really fascinated to see whether that's the case, and I'm sure it is, when they show exactly what happens behind the scenes. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it was really, really cool to talk about Michael Jordan then, and, and it'll be really cool to see because, as I said, one of the first books and best books I read was the one about Phil Jackson and talking about way back then he was talking about meditation. He used to give players books on the plane trips and, and used to read them. And it was really cool. So I'm really excited about watching that. Yeah, for sure. Now, I listened to a podcast last week with Melbourne Storm's Craig Bellamy. And he was talking about his biggest, one of his biggest strengths is because he was a role player on the team, wasn't a star player. He really related to a lot because that Melbourne Storm, obviously they've got a four or five of the best players in the game. Yeah. But they've got a whole lot of role players that have to actually do the dirty things that make this, the team successful. So he really related to the players he had to bring in and out of the team. For yourself, who was a star player, how did you be able to relate to those guys that were never at your level on a playing level? Yeah, I think one of the best – when I look back, it was probably the worst time in my footy career, but when I look back from a coaching point of view, it was the best. Like the back half of my last year in 1998 – I was sort of coming on off the ground a bit and I'd lost a bit of my athleticism. 
them and I, I started to get really frustrated that I wasn't getting, you know, I mean, back then the interchange wasn't used like it is today. So it's more, you sat on the bench for a while and, but what it allowed me to do was look through the eyes of the other players. And I realised at that time, I said, I thought to myself, gee, not everyone goes in to the game knowing they're going to get picked every week. Not everyone, you know, knows that they're, you know, they're a pretty important player on the team. And it actually was a really pivotal part of my coaching career that I, I suddenly thought, wow, um, people have different views. People are worried about whether they're going to get a game. People are not as confident as perhaps I was when in the bulk of my career. Um, and it actually changed my total perspective on what those players went through. So when I look back on it, it was an incredibly important part. And then what I did on October 1998, when I finished my career, I just sat down at my desk and I wrote down the things I liked about my coaches and things I didn't like about my coaches. And that was pivotal. And really effectively, that's what Craig Bellamy is talking about. He lived it and breathed it by his own admission. I probably only was able to live that through that last sort of six, eight weeks. But what I was able to do was then articulate on a piece of paper and say, well, okay, what are the players after? Yeah. What do they really want from a coach? And it was so important. If I, if I hadn't have written that note then, I'm not sure I would have had the connection to the players. Because what I noticed, that the longer the coaches had been out of playing, the less empathy they had and they yeah. became angrier and angrier. I was able to keep that connection with the players. And certainly when I went to Melbourne, I took that piece of paper out of my desk again and yep. I realised how important it was for the players. And I say this to leaders all the time. When you're making decisions, don't necessarily look through your own eyes. Look through the eyes of your players or your staff. Yeah. What do they want for you? And it's never been more important at the moment when you look at Prime Premier, you know, whoever it is. And you can be really obscured when you do that. Yeah. What, you know, obviously to actually start journaling and doing all that sort of stuff, it's a big step, especially for a player. What made you do that originally? I don't know. It was funny. I, I, I think because I had the experience I did in the last 10 weeks and because I rem- wanted to really remember my whole career and, and, and I didn't know whether I was ever going to coach. So it's a funny thing to do. But I just sort of thought the longer – the biggest thing for me was the longer that – because they're all players. Everyone that coached was an ex-player. And I knew I'd just finished playing. So I knew the pathway to coaching was being an ex-player. But I always felt like – most of the coaches, when I, they first started, were really good. They, but then as they got crankier and crankier, uh, they sort of started to lose their shit a bit, you know. And, yeah. and I didn't want to lose my shit if I was going to coach. So that was probably what prompted me to, to write it down, is to always think about what the players are going through at any one particular time and the ability to, to read that back written as a player I don't know. I just had this gut feeling it was going to be really important and it turned out to be absolutely imperative in what I was able to do. Yeah, aside from that, are you a journaler? Do you do it on a regular basis? I don't. Um, I'm probably more of an observer, but I, 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 I'll probably start doing it. It's something I've really wanted to do hmm. um, because now I'm getting a little bit older and my memory's not as great. I'm not <laughs> able to remember things as well. Yeah. But... Uh, I've always been an observer of things and always able to sort of store it in the, the back of my mind. But now I, I really need to start doing this. I think it's incredibly important to be able to do it. And, and I think one of the hardest things for human beings to do is hold ourselves accountable. And I think through the 25 points I wrote down, it held me accountable. Hmm. And I think the ability to journal holds everyone accountable to those moments where they go, oh, okay, that was really good or that was really bad. And then the ability to go back over and read and go, oh, shit, I, I wrote that down. I didn't really like what that person did to me and I'm actually doing it to other people. So it's a really good way, I think, journaling is a good way to hold yourself accountable to the person that you really want to be. Yeah. Now, in the, the work that you do now, obviously you're going into businesses, helping them design their leadership processes and also do things better. How much pushback and how much buy-in have you got so far? It's been really good. I guess what I really notice, and if the leader doesn't buy in, it's very hard for us to change culture. You know, right. if we're trying to get a, a purpose, values, and a lot of companies have a purpose and values, but the problem with only just going to that values-based system and not going down to behaviours, if you and I agree on a set of values and it's passionate or communication, 
what passion is to you can be different to what it is to me. But if we put a clear set of behaviours under that value, yeah. then, then there's no ambiguity. It's really clear. And that's what I noticed at Sydney and Melbourne. We were really clear on exactly how we wanted to behave. So, look, people absolutely love it. The staff really, really thrives on it. But it is challenging for the leaders because they're the ones that are held most accountable. If we're going to agree on a purpose and we're going to agree on values and then we're going to go down to behaviours and we're going to say this is how people are going to act and I know when it's going to work and when it's not going to work because if the if the leader buys into it, it's gold and the staff just just it resonates and they just they fly. The, the culture just goes through the roof. Yeah. If the leader thinks, oh, you know, it's a bit more challenging for me and it can be, absolutely. It can be challenging. Um then it's not going to work. Um, so it's not so much the system. The system is, is, is works at any level, small business, medium business, large business, footy clubs, basketball, whatever it is, even family. You can sort of tweak it to your family. You know, what do you want to stand for as a, as a family? You know, it's a really yeah. great tool. If you, haven't, if you haven't sort of delved into that, I'd love to get into schools and I'd love to be able to yep. take it into the education system. I think it would be huge in the education system. But if the leader doesn't buy in, it becomes really, really difficult because then people are saying, well, we're doing it, we're living it and breathing it, but he's not holding himself accountable or she's not holding herself accountable. Um, I love what I do. It's incredibly powerful to see the change that it makes to people's lives, to their businesses. It's just, it's just so in- empowering and that's why, that's why I get so much out of it. Yeah. Now, Rosie, something, you know, feedback. You know, feedback in sports is kind of like on a daily basis. Like, you know, you talked about introducing video for training and obviously you're watching video tapes from opposition teams the game the week before and things like that. But in business, like, for example, like we get reviews and things like that and it's like once a year sometimes. And like, I'm lucky I've got a good boss. So we talk literally every day and we always talk. And I love feedback because I come from a sporting background. But a lot of business leaders don't come from that background and don't appreciate feedback. What's kind of your approach to introducing that into a business? Yeah, it's a really good point. I think the first critical point is what are you giving the feedback on? Mm. Yeah, that's that. Unless you have a mechanism of, of our technical KPIs, which most people are pretty good at, but behaviours. If you're really clear on what those behaviours are, then the feedback doesn't become as hard because it's not personal. It's, it, it's, it's just, we've signed up to this. This is the way we're going to behave. Do you agree with it at your induction or when we're creating it at performance by design with the company? Everyone's signed up to it. So then it doesn't become as challenging. It doesn't become personal. And the second thing you talked about is you've got to do it regularly. You can't wait to a half-yearly review or a 12-month review because then all of a sudden the person you're giving feedback to can rightly say, well, why didn't you tell me five months ago? Why didn't you give me this feedback? Yeah. You're now telling me I'm not good at this, 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 this. And what footy clubs are really, really good at, regular, regular feedback. Little, we talk about little and often conversations. And I've just finished this really good book. It's called The Coach Culture Code, and it just reinforces my views. But what it says is it's little and often feedback. It's making sure you're reinforcing good behaviour and you're challenging poor behaviour on a regular, regular, regular basis. And most companies just don't do that. So then when the feedback session comes around, it's so unfamiliar to both the people, the person that's giving it and the person receiving it. If we do it on a weekly basis, then it just becomes part of what we do. It just becomes part of our culture. And that's the difference in a footy club. We don't talk about difficult conversations. We just talk about conversations. They're just conversations because we're really clear on what our technical KPIs are and we're really clear on where our behaviours are. So then when I'm sitting in front of a player or a group of players, it's just easy feedback. So my advice to corporations and companies, small, medium, large businesses, get your KPIs really clear, get your behaviours really, really clear and then just do it on a regular, often feedback. It doesn't have to be a lengthy two-hour meeting. It can be just quick we're going to have a half an hour meeting Monday morning and a half an hour meeting at the end of the week, you know, Friday afternoon, and we're going to quickly go around the room. What have you done well this week? Bang, bang, yeah. bang, bang. What can you improve on? Bang, 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 bang. Well done, et cetera, et cetera. 
and businesses just continually put that off because they don't think it's an important part of what they do. Yep. And believe me, and you know it through your, you know, through what you do, it is incredibly important to do it on a regular basis. So they're the main things. Be really clear on what you're giving feedback on and do it on a regular basis. Yeah, Rosie, what's your advice for, because, you know, in the footy scene, even in the finance scene where I work, there's a lot of people with big egos. And big egos can have a huge influence on the rest of the people around them. And that can be a negative and not just a positive. In terms of when you see things back in the day at the Swannies, when things were going negatively, influenced by an ego, like what did you do? We, we have the conversations. And ego is the most debilitating thing at a footy club, you know. But again, if you, if you let that ego get out of control, one of, the, one of the worst things I hear when I go around is, um, I'll, you know, during a feedback session or during a session where we're trying to define people's values and behaviours, it's, oh, yeah, but Mick just is what Mick is. Hang on. Mick is the way he is because you've allowed him to get away with those things for so long. That's the problem. The problem is we've let the ego go unchecked and we've let the behaviour go unchecked, all right? So ego is dangerous, but in my experience, most players just want to be given guidance. Okay, yep, I can do that, I can do that. And, do that. and that's the same in business as well. Most people just want to be really clear on how they want to behave, want to be rewarded for good behaviour, challenged for poor behaviour. And what it does, if you get it right, it exposes the ones that are there for the wrong reason. And I think that's when you're talking about ego. Yeah. Do you do under pressure? This is one of the best things that our team does, Jared and Emil, our facilitators. Under pressure, do you do what's best for yourself mm. or do you do what's best for the team? That fundamentally sums up your business. Yep. Do you do what's best for yourself or do you do what's best for your team? And egomaniacs, typically, what do they do? What's best they for themselves? themselves yeah. Under pressure, they do what's best for themselves. Get them out of your business. Get them out of there as quickly as you possibly can. But prior to that, give them the framework of how you want them to behave. Make sure you're giving them some really clear feedback on well done, well done, well done, well done. We should be giving four positive messages to one negative that's the the data around that is four to one positive to negative yeah but but really give them some clear feedback and if they i talk about acting your way into the system or acting your way out of the system and if they're not acting their way in get rid of them they will show you by their behavior that they don't want to be in the system Mm. and that's the great thing when you create a a really clear understanding and a really clear system people just act their way in or they act their way out Rizzi, after coaching at the Swannies for so long, and you know, obviously you guys had so much success, grand finals, top four all the time, when you moved to Melbourne and you knew that the squad that you had, you're rebuilding it, so you're literally probably not going to be playing finals footy and you're probably going to be losing a lot of games. Was that hard for you to adjust to the fact that you weren't going to be winning? I, I couldn't have done it had I not had the Swans experience, and I can sort of understand when I look back why Peter Jackson was trying to get someone that had been through the system that I'd been through, yeah. you know, whether that was an Alistair Clarkson or a you know, Ross Lyon type or someone like that. I can understand it because with all due respect to the people before me, and I, I don't like to necessarily talk about my, my first experience at Melbourne, but look, it was a really broken footy club. It was, mm. it was a fractured footy club. And I think Peter recognised that. So, and I knew going in it was going to be really difficult. So I wasn't under any illusions because of what Peter had told me about the club and, you know, what we'd seen. But what I would first and foremost say, that they were really good people. Like Dave Miss and I knew really, really well. He was my fitness guy and, and he was fantastic. I was able to bring in people that I trusted, Ben Matthews, George Stone, Daniel McPherson, uh, Brett Allison. I wouldn't have done the job had I not done that. Todd Viney, I love Todd Viney. I played some state against him and so the people were there the foundation was there but we just had a lot of work to do and I couldn't have done it had I not had the experience of Sydney so it was a really the same process but we we started a long way behind and we just had to do things slightly different I was really hoping to get you know finals I was probably looking at if we can get to 11-11 or 12 10 or something like that. And I think we ended up, we were 10-10 with two games to go 
and we lost the last two games. So we got to where I thought we got to. And to everyone's senior coach, you know, Jason Taylor was our recruiting guy. He was fantastic. So we had really good people in the organisation. I think Peter did a really good job of Peter Jackson and Glenn Bartley did a great job of putting great people in place. Yep. But, yeah, look, it was hard. It was frustrating. But it, it wasn't like I went in with my eyes shut. You know, I knew what, how difficult it was and I knew what we had to implement and I was really proud of everyone and what they were able to do. And, and when they made the preliminary final two years ago, it was, uh, you know, one of the proudest moments of my footy career, you know, to go. I was commentating in those games and to yeah. see... I think I remember Nathan hit the goal and the first final and to see him raise his arms and there's a famous photograph. It was a really special time. And look, they're in a really good place, unfortunately. They were not playing at the moment. And last year, hopefully it was a real eye-opener for Simon and the coaching group that they just went away from their values. They went away from what they stood for as a footy club. Yep. And I'm really confident that was potentially the year they had to have. A young coach, a coach that was learning, an innovative coach that just had to go back and say, nah, We've got to work out what we stand for as a footy club. And, you know, collectively, he built it with me over two years. The next two years, he did a great job, you know, just missing the finals the year after I left and then making the finals. And then last year, they just lost their way. And, and I'm really confident that he understands why they lost their way and has to get back to really a behavioural-based footy team, a footy team that stands for something and which they were the year before. And that's why they, they made the preliminary final. But, yeah, yeah, it was a tough time, but it was a, a really enjoyable time when I look back on it. Yeah. Rosie, you know you mentioned heaps of your support staff, and obviously they're an integral part of why you were successful. But for yourself, you know, when you first retired, you became support staff and you had to learn the way before you got the head coach as well. What makes a good assistant coach? Yeah, I think a good assistant coach, it's like anything, is, is, is really understanding what you're there to do. And, and I think you touched on it before, what Craig Bellamy talked about. You know, there, there's role when we talk about role players, it's probably a little bit disrespectful, but let's just say there are role players. There are role players in any organisation. But the ability just to do the job is really important. You know, understanding... There's a really good story that a mate of mine told me, and it was J.F. Kennedy was walking around um, Cape Canaveral, I think it was in Florida, and and going around NASA. And obviously, what an incredible... Yeah, putting people on the moon. I mean... Unbelievable. Yeah, it's far more important. And the story he told me was JFK was walking around and going around talking to people and said, went to the janitor. And the janitor said to the janitor, oh, what do you do? He goes, I put people on the moon. And clearly what they're able to do is articulate to that particular person how important his role was Mm. to the overall function of the organisation. And it just resonated with me. He didn't say, I clean the toilets or I... um, sweep the floors he said i put i help put people on the moon and fundamentally if you can get that answer from every one of your people you know whether it's at nissan what do you do i i, I we build cars oh yeah. okay fantastic at a footy club i think fundamentally as an assistant coach what do you do we try and win premierships oh okay no problems and i think if you if you take that view there's some really good data around purpose if you really clear on your purpose and what, why you exist as an organisation. It gives you a really good roadmap for what you do, regardless of what role you play within the business. And that book I was talking about before, and I couldn't remember it, but Johnson & Johnson it talked about that business, one of their products, um, had um, a whole point of the story was, all the everything they did from that moment on was purely who was set up by their original founder back in the late 30s or early 30s. And when they asked the CEO how difficult it was, it wasn't that difficult because we actually just took our creed and our purpose and everything we did, we just revolved around that. And that's how powerful it is when you get it right. You know, if you can get it right, it's so powerful. And for me as an assistant coach, um, that's what I did with my role. I thought, well, this is my role. If I can do it to the best of my ability, we're going to have a way better chance to win a premiership um, for the Sydney Swans Football Club. Yeah. Ruzi, playing versus coaching, did you have a preference? Yeah, it's, a, it's some, something I reflect more now and people ask me a lot about it. And what I say is I wish I had a coach before I played. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think I 
pretty good player and I've got a lot of accolades and I had an unbelievable career. I'm really lucky. But I know that I would have been a better player had I coached first. Now, I might have won as many medals or individual awards, but I would have been a better team player. Mm. And I think I was a good team player and I think I was a good captain. But I think I would have been better. I would have had an understanding of everything that revolved around playing had I coached. Now, clearly you can't coach before you play. But what I say is even the most selfless players, fundamentally you've got to look after yourself. So even in my best weeks, my most selfless weeks as a player, my whole goal was to turn up to be the best player I could be. The difference is as a coach, you're you're not really thinking about yourself at all. And I'm, as much as, you know, I'm thinking about Adam Goods and I'm thinking about Barry Hall and Mick Lachlan and Brett Kirk, our best players, I'm, I'm putting as much thought in to our role players. How do we – so you're, you're consumed by the whole team. You know, as a captain of Fitzroy and as a senior player of Sydney, as I said, as good as I thought I was, I was still looking after myself fundamentally. That's completely different as a coach. You're yeah. not looking after any one player. And I say this to leaders all the time. It's exhausting. If you think leadership is not tiring and not exhausting, well, you're not doing it properly. Because as a, as a coach of a footy team, it's like having 44 kids. You know, every one of those players thinks they're the most important player. And to themselves, they are. And when I look back as a player, I was the most important player in the team. I yeah. had to think that way. Because that was the only way that I was going to get myself up and play my best football. So do I enjoy it? Was, it was easier being a player. There's no doubt about that. You know, and I love being a player. Coaching is just different. I mean, the ability, people say, what do you miss about footy? The ability to get a group of players together and to get them all thinking the same thing is incredibly difficult. Now, whether that's the CEO of, you know, NAB Bank or the CEO of the you know, the small business or the business owner, cafe owner, it doesn't matter, or a footy, the ability to get everyone on the same page at the same time, it's incredibly powerful. Mm. And when I look back how lucky I was that time at Sydney and how selfless that player group was and the transformation at Melbourne, when I look at the transformation of Max Gorn, the transformation of Nathan Jones mm. over that three-year period, it's, it's just incredible when you get it right. You know, and, and to go from, you know, obviously to win a premiership at Sydney was amazing, but I remember being at the MCG and we, you know, Hawthorne had just smashed Melbourne so many times and it was the last quarter and there's neck and neck and it was in my last year and we kicked six or seven goals in the last quarter against Hawthorne. And, yeah. and that's as memorable to me as many of the games I coached at Sydney because to see the players come off the field and finally a team that just absolutely dismantled them over and over and over again. And for us to kick six goals against the best team in the comp for many, many years in the last quarter and for us to win by 20, 30 points, to to see Max Gorn, to see Nathan Jones and those young players. So when you get it right, it is just incredible as a leader, as a coach, as a CEO, as a sales manager, Yep. As a small business owner, it's just so powerful. So what do I miss? Yeah, I miss those times when you're walking off the field and you're having those incredible experiences with your team, with your staff, with your footy club. You know, to see Peter Jackson walk in the rooms and Glenn Bartlett and the people that have tipped in so much money, 2005 Premiership to walk on the ground and to see Mike Willisey and and Richard Collis and Basil Sellers and Paul Kelly and Barry Round. And it's just endless. You know, it's just incredible, really. So coaching is so different to playing. There's no question. Yeah, no doubt. Now, Bruce, you know how you didn't win a flag as a player. How hard was it then to try and win? Because in 2005, obviously, you, it's a big thing because you guys win for the Swans who had one in years, even with, with South Melbourne. But how hard is it to not win a comp as a player and then for yourself mentally try to win it as a coach? Yeah, it was interesting. Well, I was really lucky that I played in um, uh, uh, 1996. So playing in a grand final was just incredible. Mm. Um, Just I loved that experience Um, and it really helped me. The other thing which was really pivotal, and I I don't speak often about this, Mm. is 
Because I, I guess when I finished playing, I played for 17 years. I hadn't played in the Premiership. I thought, well, my time was over. I'm not going to play in the grand final, clearly. And I didn't think I was going to coach. Um, so that was, was interesting as well. Um, and I went to the Brisbane Lions. My great mate, Alistair Lynch, was um, playing. And I went to that game. I was commentating for Channel 7. And I ran on the field afterwards. And to see Lynchy, who'd been through chronic fatigue and I'd been a teammate of mine to finally pick up the Premiership Cup. That was pivotal as well. I just, it was amazing to be on the ground and the energy and then walking back to the hotel and people saying, oh, well done, Rusey. And I hadn't played for Fitzroy for a long period of time. But that experience was amazing and it probably drove me a bit as well to get into coaching and to fulfil an ambition that I knew I hadn't been able to fulfil. So those were the experiences that continued to drive me and then winning the Premiership in 05 was just incredible. Yeah. Once you win, like how much time do you give yourself to soak it all up and then how much time before you're back at the job? It was was funny. I've said this a couple of times, but I remember watching 2004 and I don't even remember. And Choco, I know Choco well and and I I really like Choco, but I remember watching the year before and it was the year where he sort of grabbed his, his tie and he put it around his neck and he made a couple of comments about the sponsors and went off his head a bit. And I remember watching that thinking, geez, Choco, did you really enjoy it? Or, or were you so bitter at what the main, um, the main sponsor had said about, you know, you hadn't been able to win it. They'd finished on top of the ladder three or four years in a row and hadn't won it. Yeah. And I remember, it's funny, I remember thinking going into 2005, I never want to, if we do win it, I want to be really present at the end of the game and I really want to take it in. So Choco did me a favour doing what he did because it allowed me to sort of think about it the night before and think, well, if we do, you know, we, we do win, I really want to soak it in. And because I'd had that conversation with myself in my head, the siren sounded, we were able to sit as a group at the coaching group, um, spend some time together. I was able to walk onto the ground really clear, really present, look around me, see my wife, see my kids, see all the people that I mentioned before, get up on stage, um, talk coherently about what we'd done. And the, the thing with here it is, that only popped. I didn't really rehearse that. That sort of came late. And then the result of that was just the next sort of 24, 48 hours, 72 hours. And I really wanted to give myself some time to just take it in and just to enjoy it. And, and I did that for a long period of time. And I remember sitting on the beach and it was quite bizarre. I remember being in Maui and we're sitting on the beach and I never would wear this in Australia. And I had the premiership hat on, 2005 premiership hat. I was literally sitting on this little private beach and just sort of reflecting because for me it was the first time the season had finished. Mm. And, and that probably was the main thing that hit me that I, I didn't realise that no season had ever finished prior to 2005. And I was sitting there and this Irish guy come up to me and goes, um, oh, um, I watched that grand final of Sydney Swans and, you know, it's fantastic. And did you watch the game? And I said, yeah, no, I watched the game. And he said, oh, Swans and Ty Kennelly. And he, was, he said, oh, you know, do you follow the Swans? He said, oh, I said, oh, I'm actually the coach of the Swans. And, <laughs> and I, I won't tell you what he said. He threw in a couple of, he in a couple of swear words and yeah. stuff like that. But, yeah, I did give myself a, a long period of time to really reflect on um, what we'd achieved. And I think that was a really important part of it um, because if, and if you don't reflect on your successes, then there's no real difference between success and failure. And I think you've got to, you've got to really reflect on your success. You've got to really enjoy your success and you've got to really thrive and, and, and spend time with people that, you know, your family, your friends, your coaches, et cetera, et cetera. So I was really conscious of spending as much time as I could on it on our success. Yeah. Now, just like moving forward, like do you ever write down like things that you've accomplished from the past that like, for example, 2005 grand final, that's a huge thing. So do you ever like write it down? Cause what I'm getting at the moment, some of the younger boys that I get on the podcast, like they forget a lot of the things that they did when they were 18 to 22. So for example, rep teams, all these little teams that were pretty significant. And then yeah. when, when I introduced it to them again, I go, Oh Jesus, I forgot I did that. And that was, that was an awesome part of my life. Yeah. Like, What's your, what's your approach to kind of things that we've done in the past? 
Yeah, look, I've been really lucky. When I got first approached to do a book, I was sort of thought reluctant to do it. But one of the things I found through doing it was remembering those things. So I, I would really encourage, even think about it as an autobiography, right? And I, I, I did it because I got asked to do it. But there's no doubt through doing that, it was so valuable to be able to put things into perspective. And I went back over things and I looked at things and I remembered dates and all that. So I've, I've done three books and I'm 56 now. So even the ability to be able to go and, and pick up those books and read through some of the things that I've forgotten. So I, I would absolutely encourage people to actually do it and even do it as an autobiography. It might sound a little bit egotistical, but just do it yourself. Write it down. You know, write down those memories because we do forget. Yeah. And, and at the time it mightn't seem that important as – those 25 points I wrote down, it didn't seem that important at the time to write down those 25 points, but I'm so glad I did that. It didn't seem really important to me to, to do my first book um, in, when was it, 97 or 98? But when I look back on it now and when I can give it to my kids to read and, and the other books that I did, with one with my wife and the latest one called Here It Is, but, it, but they are important. So they won't seem like it at the time, but I guarantee if you do it, it'll be really important to do it. Yeah, sure. Now, let's wrap up with my, my dinner party question, mate. Now, you've got five invites to a private dinner party. Now, only rules. No family yep. or friends, but you can invite anyone dead or alive. Who would Paul Ruse like to invite to dinner? Yeah, it's, it's something we all talk about, isn't it? It's, a, it's an interesting conversation. Um, well, Michael Jordan is probably the main one. I mean, Michael Jordan, I like Phil Jackson. I think Nelson Mandela yep. would be incredibly interesting i think barack obama not that i'm political or anything like that but i'm more interesting people that i think would be really interesting um and maybe mother Teresa, you know like someone like that from a um historical point of view but you know what she's been able to do so off the top of my head but i think it's one of those things you you could sort of you'd love to get 20 30 40 50 people in a room but yeah interesting people and probably mainly with that group as i said it's it's more around leadership now more around what yeah i was gonna say that you picked five leaders like huge leaders yeah well well, i remember going to um where nelson mandela was was held and you know we were able to do that and it was just just you know getting inside his head you know obama you know, as the first African-American president of the United States. Yep. Um, you know, so those sort of things really interest me, just to sit around the table and, you know, what were they going through? What were the thought process, uh, Mother Teresa, what she was doing? So, yeah, look, it's probably more from a leadership point of view than anything else at the moment. For sure. Well, Ruzi, I really appreciate you joining me on the podcast. Before I let you leave, get following Ruzi Instagram. You'll find him at PaulRuse number one, performancebydesign.co slash au. You can also find him at paulruse.com.au. And just again, Tammy's website, because I think it's pretty important right now, especially for people that want to start meditation. Ruzi, what was that again, mate, bud? Yeah, so tammyruse.com. So there's some great stuff on the website. There's some new programs about to be uploaded. There's a meditation mindset program that you can link into as well but yeah look thanks mate i really encourage particularly our conversation around people's health and well-being it's a really important time for people to look after themselves and reach out as well please reach out to family reach out to friends uh reach out to myself if you need to reach out to me i'm accessible as well but yeah it's a really important time in humanity and looking after ourselves so mate thanks for having me and thanks for having some really good conversation no i appreciate it Rizzy. stay safe during this period mate and all the best to the fam too but and that, guys, was Ruzi, Paul Ruse, an absolute legend of a bloke. Check out his new company, Performance by Design. That's performancebydesign.co. You also find him on Instagram. I think that's his main social media, but definitely get him, give him a follow and check him out. He's a great speaker, as you just did here, and an absolute legend of a bloke. All right, back to the NRL next Monday. Another legendary bloke. I'm just sending this legendary word out a little bit lately. But uh, Benny Cross. He's got a great story. He actually debuted at 24 years of age with the Canberra Raiders. Uh, to his, you know, he's got an amazing story, which took him to a premiership with the Melbourne Storm. Learned under the best with Craig Bellamy. Played New South Wales State of Origin. So for a guy that debuted at 24, you know, pers- perseverance, patience. There's a lot of different stories in this. He just wrapped up coaching, unfortunately, with the 
with the Brisbane Broncos. He's been hit by this isolation period, but he is also offering some private mentoring, coaching. So I'll have all those links up for what he's doing in terms of that coming up. But yeah, Ben Cross, in terms of coaching, playing, just his general story, an absolute brilliant bloke. So be on the lookout for that one when that one drops on Monday. Get in touch with me during this isolation period. Highly encourage it. Facebook, Twitter, at TalkingWithTK. Instagram, I'm Tristan Nell, or send me an old school email, Tristan at TalkingWithTK.com, whether it's from footy to just saying day, Just, you know, pop pop in and say day. So I'd love to hear from you. My book, Talking With Champions, that's out now. 75 of my best interviews across my podcast career. It does include some other ones away from Talking With TK with the likes of Jonathan Thurston, Evander Holyfield, George Foreman, Layla Ali, Mario Andretti, and many, many more. So you can pick up a copy at Dimmick's, Booktopia, Oingus and Robinson. It's called Talking With Champions, and it is out now. All right, guys, that's it for this week. Keep staying safe. Hopefully you come out of this ISO soon. Enjoy the footy. I'm Tristan Cannell, and this was Talking With TK.